You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. 30 Minutes of Madness will never die. We all clicked together because we were the outsiders, nerds, skaters, and punks, jumping around, freaking out. So 30 Minutes of Madness just sounded right. We moved in together. Within a few months, 30 Minutes of Madness died. I blame myself, but it's not all my fault. It could not have worked then, but it doesn't mean that it couldn't work now. This summer, I'm going back to Michigan to make a new episode of 30 Minutes of Madness. These people lost touch with being artists. 80 to 90% of the core group of people that were on the show are struggling with everything from drug addiction, mental illness, unfulfilling lives in, in whatever way. You know, when you're addicted to heroin, you get lost. I couldn't do anything except for think about my life with you. You end up going crazy. We're all sitting here saying there's something wrong with them, and we all walked away. It's kind of like the end of a dream. All of what I am came from working on that show. I believed that we could just turn nothing into something. This is the only thing that I've ever believed in, 100% in my life. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where we can collaborate without these kind of arguments? No. Do you think it's worth it? You know, 20 years from now, no matter what happens, we're all gonna be here. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Hi, ho neighbor. Well, this week, we are talking about a documentary film called 20 Years of Madness. Released just this year, it is directed by Jeremy Royce, and it stars Jerry White Jr., a local boy made good, a uh, guy from the north of Detroit, who... Uh, for many, many, many years, 20 years in fact, was behind a local access television show that was called 30 Minutes of Madness, and I am hoping that I don't screw up and say 30 Years of Madness or 20 Minutes of Madness as I'm recording this episode with you, Rob, because I really think that I can screw those two titles up pretty easily. Oh, I can understand that, and plus, I mean, I can understand a little rivalry between you two because you're brothers, right? No relation between myself and Jerry White. Well, I thought all the Whites know each other, and they all look alike. You don't have to pay. (laughs) Why don't you just take the money? (laughs) So the, the thing that's great about this, and I feel a little sad that I missed out on the 30 Minutes of Madness back in the early 90s. Now, to give you a little background on what 30 Minutes of Madness was, it was a cable access show that was done in Oakland County. Uh, just sort of north of Detroit. And it was, it appears like high school kids and just out of high school kids who did this show for about mm, three years or so, 
it seems like maybe 92 to 96 or something like that. And they had a cable access show and it was just like all kinds of weird skits and doing odds and ends and various things. Cause you get clips of it throughout the film. And when you're introduced to the various people that we meet and the sad thing, and I think I've talked about this before. I grew up relatively poor, so we didn't have cable when I was a kid. And I don't know if I would have even received this cable access feed the next county over where I lived. So I think I would have been totally screwed. And really, the only way that I would have gotten my hands on something like this would have been through someone like my friend Chris, who for years before YouTube, and this is going to show you how old I am, uh, and we are, Mike, People would take, um, there were like mixed videos. Like people would do little skits or they would make little short films and they would put them on tape and then they'd dub it and you'd get like an 18th generation from someone and it would be a bunch of odds and ends. Some had credits, some didn't, so you didn't know uh, who was doing what. And I think that probably would have been the only way I ever would have saw 30 Minutes of Madness uh, when I was a kid, but sadly, I never saw it. And this was all completely new to me uh, walking into this documentary. But that's okay because I don't think you need to be a fan of that show or even know that show in order to enjoy this documentary. No, the documentary really does a great job of taking you into this world, introducing you to, and I'm going to use the word characters, even though these are real people, but introducing you to the characters of the documentary. And, um, you know, especially Jerry White Jr., just kind of showing his whole progression, where he was at back when he was in high school and then they have these tapes of him every birthday kind of giving like a little status report where he's at and you can see the physical and emotional and his situation kind of change over the years it was like boyhood which was shot over a period of 12 years yeah it, it was totally like boyhood i kept thinking to myself i'm like here he is it's like hi it's my 21st birthday hi it's my 22nd you know and all the way up to the current day and i was pretty impressed by that because to me it kind of reminded me of um like like people that will take a photo every day for like the rest of their lives or you know do a particular thing on one day every year to like document that and the the closest i've come to that is my journals i I write a lot so like i have journals going back to middle school but that takes a little more you know, to go in there and actually open the journal and go, what was I doing in 1995? You know, so, so on video, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It kind of reminded me a little bit of capturing the Freedmen's as far as, you know, the, having such a rich treasure trove of video to kind of go back and piece together a story and being able to use the progression, like the literal progression of your main character throughout all these years and then to, you know, show where he was in high school and then show where he's at now and have this kind of journey of him going back and saying, let's shoot one more episode. I mean, it was super effective. And I have to say that the film is structured really, really well. And I wasn't sure coming into it if I was really going to like it that much. I only had one person tell me about this movie beforehand. I, I saw it down at the Detroit Film Theater, did a little 20-minute Q&A with, uh, with the guys up on stage, which was nice. They showed Actually, they showed episode 15. Now, Rob, when I sent you the screener, was episode 15 on that? Uh, I don't believe so, but I did 
go to the website because I think the website's mentioned a couple times. And yeah. I went and looked at that, and I think there was a couple of various um, clips and things like that. So I did see a little bit of it, but I, I didn't see a whole show. At seeing episode 15 after seeing... 20 minutes of madness i think is absolutely necessary because it's like you get the whole making of the movie throughout you know the the making of the episode throughout 20 years of madness and then you get a little bit at the end with all of the folks watching the episode and their reactions and stuff but you don't see the whole thing put together so I think seeing the full thing, and you can see that over at 30mom.com, that really kind of puts a fine cap on everything and just shows what work went into the episode. Because, you know, as you're watching it, you're like, well, I don't know. Some of those old clips that they showed, they were kind of clever and stuff, but I don't know if I could put up with watching a whole half hour of these kids just kind of dicking around. And then when you finally see some of these episodes out there, it's like, okay, yeah, I can get behind this. Obviously the early episodes are fairly juvenile and everything, but it's okay. And it was interesting to see what they were doing in the early nineties with video technology and them kind of just being very creative. Because like I was saying, the one person who described this movie to me before I saw it, it was like, well, these kids, they just talk about how wild and crazy they were. And they really expect that they were going to become big time because they were wild and crazy. Well, I was wild and crazy with my friends and I got it on video, but we never expected to become famous for it. And it's like, well, okay. I could. <laughs> so I kind of went in with that, with a chip on my shoulder a little bit. And then when I finally watched the movie, I was like, no, no, this works. This yeah. works really well. I mean, to me, it seems like a great double feature with something like American movie. Oh, hell yes. And, and it's not to say that Jerry White Jr. is deluded as Mark Borchardt. I do not believe that to be the case. Uh, but what it really is about is not so much even about the process of them making something. It's really about the friendship. It's really about the community. It's really about all these people. And it's it, like the, the only other thing I can liken it to is, dude, we're getting the band back together. And we get the band back together. And it's sort of like, how you been? We haven't seen you in 20 years. Well, you know, I got married, I got divorced, I was, you know, addicted to heroin, I'm trying to get off heroin, you know, I, I tried to do this, that didn't work, um, you know, I've, I've had these issues, I've had that issue, I found God, uh, and then I got rid of that. I mean, it's just interesting to watch, you know, I, I guess sort of the idealism and early focus of, of people when they're just figuring out you know, in high school and just after high school. And then now 20 years later to get back together and go, where are we in our lives? And how important was this in our early lives? Was it some big defining thing for us? Was it some small little blip that, you know, I don't really even think about it anymore. And it's, you know, whatever, I'm just here to, see who's alive and who's dead and who's in prison. I mean, like, like a high school reunion. I mean, like, and, and that was the thing that was interesting to watch is I kept thinking about how it was all about, like I said, it was really about friendships. It was really about people reconnecting with each other after bad things had happened in their early twenties where people stopped talking or people tried to, make a life for themselves and then things fell apart and other things happened and what this thing meant to them regardless of the output 
because you know the output is one thing but what you learn when you're creating it you know it's that i guess it's that whole kind of like buddhist mentality of you know it's it's not so much the art that you create but it's what you learn on the path when you're walking you know uh, to get there what you what you learn by doing and that's that's really what i think this is about so anyone who walks in and goes i don't know what that show is why do i want a documentary about it i think it's completely missing the point yeah it's kind of like the greatest class reunion movie you could ever have. I mean, fuck Romeo and Michelle. It, this is the real deal as far as like... <laughs> it's it's the greatest class reunion movie for the AV geeks like us. That's really oh, what yeah. it is. Like, like if you did video in high school or you did some sort of geeky thing in high school, you're going to love it. Yeah, because these aren't the football players, the A-team, the preps, the jocks, whatever you want to call these folks, that, that group wasn't them you know it wasn't um to use the what was it the the outsider's term it wasn't the socias it was you know these are the people that i would have hung out with probably when i was in high school and man yeah just the, it's so disturbing though i have to say at certain points when just so many people have not had their lives go as perfectly as they might have over the last 20 years and i'm sure that there were folks where they were doing great and everything kind of came together but again that doesn't necessarily make good television as they say so we really kind of get more of these broken heart kind of stories and i'm absolutely fine with that i'm not looking at the the director here going why didn't you show me more of these folks i think that the people that they focused in on were the right people and that chemistry um and i use chemistry very loosely because sometimes it's not you know the perfect combination of elements coming together and making something harmonious a lot of times it's like acids and bases coming together and just they spark each other off man after 20 years they're still having the same kind of fights that they were before and i thought it was perfect you know it kind of uh, it Another documentary it reminded me of a little bit was the uh, Metallica documentary, where they're just fighting all the time, and they, you know, are all screwed up after all these years and everything. But for me, it works, and this one works just the same way. And I'm so glad you brought up American Movie because I was so reminded of American Movie so many times throughout this. But the thing with American Movie, I was really glad when I saw American Movie, I saw Coven right afterwards so it was a one-two punch seeing it up in toronto years and years ago when the movie was first out and you see mark borchard and you see him like well this is how it's going to look and you know he's doing the framing with his fingers and everything and you're like ah this guy doesn't know anything this is just going to be ridiculous you know this is it's before tommy wiseau made his appearance on the scene but you're expecting a movie as bad as that and he's just like oh yeah it's going to go across here and the music's going to come on it's going to be like wah and then it's going to be like this and that and he's describing all this stuff and you're like ah this guy oh man this is going to be ridiculous and then they show coven afterwards and it's like wow this guy actually knew what he was talking about you know it's like what (laughs) what is this guy actually has the talent to back it up so when i'm watching 20 years of madness and they're shooting all these skits and stuff i'm just like man some of this stuff looks pretty rough i don't know like especially like the uh the skit at the barber shop i'm just like i don't know this could go pretty bad and they're fighting and you took out my joke about the lunch breaks and this and that and i'm just like oh god this thing is gonna go so bad (laughs) 
And then when I watch it, I'm just like, wow, that actually really works. That was hilarious. And there's great stuff to it. And there's like this kind of like level of surreal humor to it. And uh, it's cut together really well. It's directed really well. It's acted really well by these non-professional actors. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I buy it now. So I'm so glad that I was able to see one and then the other, because otherwise I might've been left scratching my head going, could this be as good as it was? Were people laughing in the audience because they knew who these folks were, you know, was it a party kind of thing or could somebody who didn't know these people actually enjoy 30 minutes of madness? I had no idea about the show going in. So I think it was well-structured and I think the documentary was quite good because ultimately it's about something I think all of us can understand, you know, friendship and long-term friendship and how we change from, you know, getting out of high school to, you know, I guess nearing middle age, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's, uh, it, it kind of spoke to me because I'm about that age. They're a couple years older than I am. And I was just like, I can see this, you know, this is like what me and my friends used to do. And if we got together and we did our little projects or we got our band back together from high school, I'm sure we'd have the same thing. We'd be arguing over creative choices, but at the bottom of it, it may not even be about the creative choices. It might be about, you know, you never listened to me then and you're not listening to me now. And why did you stop talking to me? Um, you know, what did I do? What did you do? Like, where did, where did we go wrong? Where did I go wrong? I mean, that, that was the resonance really for me that, that, that is far bigger than the show itself. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Jeremy Royce and Jerry White Jr., and we'll be right back after this interview. My name is Jeremy Royce, and I directed 20 Years of Madness. I'm Jerry White Jr., and uh, I'm one of the producers of 20 Years of Madness and one of the primary documentary subjects of the film. Jerry, how did you guys meet each other? Jeremy and I both attended USC uh, for in their uh, film program, the School of Cinematic Arts, and uh, randomly uh, ended up being roommates in a house that had five, you know, people living there. And I was about a year ahead of him in the program. He came in. We both moved in the house within days of each other, and uh, you know, in the same program, a lot of the same people, and you know, that's how it started. Now, how did you kind of introduce him to 30 Minutes of Madness? It's not that long after I meet someone, typically, that I, that I end up mentioning it. it. It's definitely been a big part of my life. But particularly with fellow film people, uh, you'll often show people your old work. You know, how, how did you get to where you are now? And um, I had done kind of a compilation, um, not a best of, but a, you know, an odds and ends. Uh, episode back in 2008, and this is just a couple years or, or so before I met Jeremy. So I showed him that episode and kind of talked about how, you know, this was the thing that got me interested in, in movie making as a teenager. Jeremy, what did you think of this when you first saw it? At first, I was kind of blown away by the volume. You know, we, we tend to make short films, both in film school and out, just because it costs so much money to make anything longer. And Jerry's, the episode of 30 Minutes of Madness is uh, 30 minutes, and it's lots of different sketches, and it was clearly a, a labor of love. Um, so I was kind of blown away by the, the amount of effort and time he put into this thing that didn't really go anywhere except for, you know, online. And I guess it played public access stations afterward. But it was clear that Jerry was, you know, really, really 
in love with this thing, even when he was thousands of miles away from his friends and the place that it got started. How did that seed of the idea that you were going to make this documentary, how did that happen? Um, you know, Jerry went back in, to Michigan, I think in 2011, um, and ended up catching up with a lot of the people that, that he hadn't seen in years. Not everyone. There were a lot of people he still didn't t- get in touch with then. And when he came back and told me, um, and told me that it was going to be the 20-year anniversary, uh, I was adamant that he had to he had to go make a new episode and he had to make a documentary about it because you know the 20 years is kind of a big milestone. Um, so and the the characters, the lives that every, the the main subjects lived were all really interesting and unique, and it just seemed like the perfect story and the perfect structure to tell a a larger story of what this show was and and what the people in the show were to each other. Now, at this point, had you made documentaries before? Yeah, before grad school, um, I'd worked as a documentary editor for four years during undergrad and afterward, and I had directed a 12-part web series um, in 2008, documentary web series where I traveled across the country and did stories on different people and uh, organizations. So I, I had a history with documentary. I'd never attempted to make a feature-length documentary, but um, yeah, it was using a lot of the same skills that I'd been honing for years. So the trip that you show in the movie is kind of more like the second trip. It's not the first one where we kind of uh, where you're talking that Jerry goes back home and hooks up with some of the people that he used to work with. Yeah, it was the second trip. I mean, I, I think Jerry could probably. Um, address that a little bit more accurately, but I know that he'd made pilgrimages home for years. And that was one of the first times that he spoke with Joe Hornacek, who was the main founder. But most of the other subjects, he still didn't contact that summer either. Uh, as I've often said, in, in my heart of hearts, 30 Minutes Madness never ended. It never truly died. I was just in between episodes, which is, you know, I would be tinkering on the website and doing all of this. So, you know, when Jeremy was like, you know, 20 year anniversary, like what a perfect excuse and opportunity to, to make a new episode and, and have this documentary. I didn't need to be nudged very hard at all, but <laughs> it really hinged a lot on whether or not Joe, who really, you know, we came up together um, and started this really together, it hinged on him. And I had to pitch that to Joe. So even though the ice had somewhat thawed between us over the years, uh, I had not approached him to actually film again since the 90s. So that moment in the dock when Joe says you should do another episode, you already had that idea in your head, like, this is what I want to do. Definitely. But, like, having Joe give his thumbs up, like, that, you know, changes, you know, that that makes it really possible. Now, there have been other people on the show over the years but he and I, I believe, are the only two people who are on every episode. Like, I, I have a, um, a, a shifting definition of what a, a show can look like, um, as long as it, you know, it's weird and tinges with madness. But if there's a hard rule, um, I try to stick to 30 minutes, and I feel like me and Joe need to be involved. What was the original impetus for you guys to make 30 Minutes of Madness? As a kid, I was always acting... I like to act and sing, and I really saw myself to becoming an actor someday. And um, we, you know, I was friends with Joe before we ever made movies. We collected comics together and just hung out. But he was also kind of a class clown, and he liked to, you know, joke around and be silly. And a friend of ours, uh, Tim, his father had a video camera, and Joe invited me. He's 
invited me over to his house one weekend. He's like, hey, we're going to make movies this weekend. And really, the first year or so of, of filming together were just these home movies that we would edit with two VCRs, and it didn't have a greater audience than each other. But when I learned about public access, I thought, you know, we can put this on TV. We can have a TV show. And it just seemed like a natural progression. And I still acted, but um, I found myself often, you know, getting behind the camera and editing. And we often wore, each of us wore a lot of hats. But really, it just started as like this natural thing that we like to do. We like to make each other laugh. And um, I think we're all kind of hams. One of the things I really like about 30 Minutes of Madness is how much you play with the form and how much the the technology of video, of you know blue screen, all these kind of things, how much you are messing around with that while you're you know doing the show. Yeah, and I think when we were teenagers, I mean, we had access to this public access studio and green screen, and it may be uh, you know very dated now. It was actually kind of dated then but it was like maybe only 10 or 15 years dated. And to us, like no one had access to this. No one was editing with computers. No one else could do green screen or, you know, pump in video and, and like have it on your chest or do split screen and all of this stuff. So this was just like, you know, it's just like uh, having a band we made music. So it's like having effect pedals and making psychedelic stuff. We just naturally wanted to play with this. And then now in, in making the new show, it just, it kind of continu- continues. Uh, a bit of it, though, is a bit of retro homage, but we never fully got tired of playing with those original toys. Jeremy, what were some of the biggest challenges when it came to tackling a project like this, especially one that has so many years of backstory to it? I think the biggest challenge was just the number of characters. I mean, there were so many people who appeared on the show, and all of them had really unique and interesting life stories. We were, I think the first list of potential characters was 22 or 23 people. Wow. So over the course of um, filming the new episode and figuring out who has time to come out and be part of the new show, we, it was easy to whittle down who the potential characters, the stars of the documentary would be. But uh, even into the editing process, we still had characters that we had to, you know, sort of not focus on to make room to, to properly tell the stories of the other characters. I think as it is now, there's about seven characters who are all followed. So as an ensemble piece, there's unique challenges to introducing everybody soon enough so they don't come out of nowhere and also giving everyone the appropriate amount of time to really get into their story. And then also just the sheer volume of material to work with. There was over 300 hours of uh, original footage and then we shot an additional 200 hours roughly of modern day footage. So taking all of that back and really finding the story and figuring out what the documentary wanted to be was a year and a half long process. I don't know how to say this nicely, but it feels like so many of the folks that are stars of the documentary have been damaged in some way. You know, people like Matt or Lucian, John, where it just feels like their lives have kind of gone a little bit awry or maybe not the way that they necessarily had planned. It was that just the folks that you're hanging around with Jerry or just that the environment or why do you think that that was that so many of these folks just kind of had these sad stories to them? That's a great question. And it's, it's frankly something I don't have a definitive answer to. And it's something that we've all been asking each other 
over the years as as details emerge and whatnot. Some thoughts I have on it, though. First of all, I would say nobody's life ends up where they expect when they're a teenager. Now, granted, right. that doesn't mean everyone um, has a tr- tragic story per se, but um, even the people who uh, in the in the doc, like my friend Andy, one of the things he says is, you know, he's trapped in his mundane life while he has, you know, he's adjusted and he has a job and all these things. He's not happy either. Um, or he's struggling in his own way. I'm struggling in my own way. But as far, I mean, as far as the people that are really uh, having difficult times, I feel like it, it. I do have to trace it back to what brought us all together in the first place back in high school. And there's no doubt that we were uh, the outsider kids uh, in a number of different ways. And I've tried to think about, was there a socioeconomic factor? Were, were, were people coming from broken homes? And, and frankly, there's no one uh, thread, like the socioeconomic uh, thing, you know, basically working to middle class. But, you know, uh, a lot of the people's parents were still together. Some were divorced. Some had uh, drug issues. Some did not. So I just think that maybe we were creative people. And there's always that talk about the fine line between creativity and madness and again, that's why I was doing this show called 30 Minutes of Madness. Like we were not only weird, we were embracing that weirdness. And I think that um, it's not a coincidence that into our 20s, when a lot of issues, especially things like mental illness, really start to have their, um, you know, really start to come into the forefront. Uh, it's not really a, a huge shocker, as unfortunate as it is. I have to say, though, that along with that, kind of uh, weirdness, for lack of a better term, comes that creativity and just seeing how creative you guys are with the old shows and with the new show. I mean, things like the stupid song at the end of the episode about the (laughs) Razzmatazz, that was stuck in my head for days after seeing the film the first time. And then seeing it again, it's right back in there. And I'm just like, oh God, but it's so great. I love that it's like the two seem to go hand in hand as far as the weirdness and the creativity. No, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's, um, it muses me like it inspires me in a lot of ways. And it's something that, uh, you know, I made some great friends and future collaborators out in California. And while I was at USC, it's been so rare that I found that style, that, that thing that is so bizarre and, 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 uh, comes from totally left field and it's it's it is stupid it's often so stupid that it's genius or it's funny and um you know i find myself coming up with ideas like that around a lot of these guys and then they're coming up with it and it's it's almost like this private language that we have i don't know exactly why but um it's the thing that i think keeps me coming back it's it's constant surprise like there's i wouldn't say everything we do is completely 100% original or anything, but there are a lot of things that I just feel like, yeah, I have not heard this song before. I have not felt this vibe before, and I love that. I love being surprised. Jeremy, what's it like making a project about basically Jerry's baby, having him as a filmmaker that you're documenting, but he's also right there alongside you? The original agreement we had was that if I was going to direct the film, that I would have to have complete creative control over uh, the shape it took and also the final cut of the edit. So having that original agreement kind of gave me the freedom to 
steer it in the direction that I, I thought would be best for the film. And Jerry, frankly, was most of the time preoccupied with wrangling all of the actors to make his show and taking care of the logistics of finding all the locations and writing the sketches and everything. In some ways, the fact that he was preoccupied with making the show gave me even more creative access to telling the documentary because, you know, he couldn't have done both of those things simultaneously. And he would, we would work together, um, you know, if there, was, if there were two options to shoot a sketch at two different locations and one of them was really good for the doc and one of them wasn't, Jerry was usually pretty flexible when it came to that stuff. Or scheduling around, you know, because scheduling is such a big part of filmmaking, both documentary and narrative. So um, in some ways, working with a subject who understood the challenges of making a movie was a really big gift for the documentary. And in other ways, it was, you know, a little tricky because, of course, somebody who is the subject and knows what can be done is going to have special requests about um representation and things like that. But in general, it wasn't really ever an issue because we always had that trust that uh, he trusted me to tell the story the best way I thought possible. One of the things I really like about the doc is just the way that you kind of blend the older footage in with the newer stuff. And there's so many nice echoes of the new to the old and vice versa. That must have been really challenging, kind of finding those moments in the editing process. Or maybe you had those in mind while you were making the film. Were some of those happy accidents or were they kind of planned? I'd say probably 50-50. I mean... From the beginning, I, I knew that I wanted the documentary to sort of follow the original shape of the, the story of 30 Minutes of Madness, from like them getting together and just playing in front of the camera to trying to do something a little bit more ambitious to eventually having you know these big struggles uh, in the creative process with one another. Um, we didn't plan to have fights between the subjects, but it was kind of unavoidable given the, the, uh, the collection of personalities that were on the show. So um, in a way, I had moments that I knew would probably come in handy, and most of the time they did. And then, of course, going through the archival footage and discovering things. You know, I might watch eight hours of footage in one day and only come across five minutes of usable stuff. But every once in a while, you come across something that's just magical. Where you're like, I can't believe this exists. Like Jerry and Joe talking in front of the television, um, filming themselves, saying, look, look at there we are in the future and we're rich and famous. And, you know, the first moment I saw that, I was like, wow, that's so profound. So in a lot of ways, the archival footage drove the modern day footage. Yeah, it was a, it was a really unique experience getting a chance to sift through seven years of, you know, these people's lives. There was never any mandate. You know, Jeremy talked about, um, you know, his process of directing the doc while I'm directing the show. You know, there was never a mandate like, do this for the show because it's going to help the doc. Now that said, there were certain things that I knew could help the doc, but was also going to be something really interesting for the show. For example, the back to the freeway skit in that original skit, Joe says 20 years later, whether there was a doc present or not, since it was 20 years later, I don't think I could have held myself back from doing <laughs> some kind of allusion to that. But the fact that the doc got to benefit, it was just win-win. Or similarly, uh, the Lethal Finger skit we do, you know, that was the first skit we ever did. The, that very first weekend that Joe invited me over, it was just, just stupid, <laughs> silly uh, character. But I felt like, you know, if I'm going to reunite and, and we have to go back to the very first place we ever shot anything, just, you know, for a sense of completion. Um, so 
it just happens maybe because I'm I'm very nostalgic and and have this lifelong obsession with this show that I naturally gravitated to things that also happened to happily echo. Um, but there wasn't ever a case of like, all right, Jerry, I found this footage, so you need to do this. Any instances of that were pretty serendipitous. Jerry, how long would each episode take to put together? I mean, both shooting and editing. It really varied, you know, because we were shooting for a good year and a half before the show started, I had a backlog of footage. So I think the first, the first year of the show, I put out four, four half hour episodes. Um, and as we progressed, you know, once we got out of school and people had jobs and were going to college, the output slowed to like one a year, but that was also because, um, I was no longer satisfied just throwing anything, you know, onto the show, just being on TV. Um, and that novelty was no longer enough. I wanted, we all wanted to up our game to not completely repeat ourselves. So things became more complicated but then that also brought some more stress, too, because now we're trying to shoot in a location, we're trying to write a skit, and people have to juggle schedules. And if someone doesn't show up, you know, in the past, we might have just said, okay, well, let's just film something different and just make it up. But when there was a script and a schedule, that became a little more difficult. So by the end, you know, uh, the last two episodes took, like, over a year, and they came out at the same time, episodes 12 and 13, but even this episode 15 took me quite a long time to edit. Yeah, I can't even imagine some of those just split-second cuts that you have going on there, and so many of them. What, what were you using to edit? Um, actually, the, the doc and the show were both edited in a Final Cut Pro. But I have the, the, the advantage of this being standard def footage. So uh, even though I have to make those split-second cuts, uh, I'm getting a lot less crashes, and I'm dealing with, you know, significantly less footage than, than Jeremy is in editing the doc. So it took a long time, and, and I was fairly meticulous, but at least on a software side, it was it was pretty generous for me. What was kind of the timeline as far as when the first show came out and some of the episodes that followed up? I mean, because this is a 20-year process between the first episode and the 15th episode. Episode one uh, aired March 5th, 1992. So uh, Jeremy had mentioned me coming back from a road trip in 2011. So 2012 was the actual 20-year uh, anniversary. So we came to Michigan in 2012 and, and did the bulk of the shooting. But yeah, with the original shows aired from 92 through 96. And then that kind of... Um, thrown-together kind of smorgasbord episode I cut together and finished in 2008. But I, I tooled on that on and off for like eight years, a lot more off than on, but yeah. Did you ever have any problems with the uh, local access as far as you know it being racy or just too weird for television? I would get calls from, I believe his name was Dave Zorn, and he was the president or he ran public access. And he would call me about, you know, complaints that they would get about language or content or naked guys on four wheelers. But because of uh, freedom of speech and just the way that the contract worked, he couldn't outright forbid it. He would just say, hey, you know, you guys, can you guys tone it down? 
And the, what he couldn't have known was him calling me was having the exact opposite effect. First of all, I was just thrilled getting confirmation that people were watching. <laughs> like, this was like, because we didn't have Nielsen numbers. We had no idea. So, like, whoa, people are calling in and complaining. Like, you're telling that to an obviously already rebellious teenager. So I love that. I mean, it didn't necessarily make me say, oh, I'm going to push it even farther. We weren't really, tr- I mean, we had a little bit of blue humor, but that was never the main goal. But ultimately, all they did was we started to show off on a 9 p.m. time slot. And by the time we went off the air, it was at 11.30 p.m. And that was actually the last time slot that they had. So we, they pushed us as far into the night as they could. You were the not ready for primetime players almost. <laughs> exactly. We actually started in kind of prime time. We, we, we worked the opposite way. We were like kind of prime time, and then they just threw us into the night. I have to say, one of the most magical parts of the documentary is that whole montage of you, Jerry, getting older. And, you know, this is me at 26, this is me at 27. Just amazing to watch that going on. I mean, Jeremy, that, again, must have been such a gift to be able to have a subject who has documented so much of his own life. Absolutely. And uh, I think Jerry hadn't even watched all of those birthday messages. They were sort of recorded for posterity, but I was giving, you know, I was in a really privileged position to get get a chance to kind of check in with him every year for the most part um, for that whole, you know, period of his life. And it was really hard to cut it as short as we did because there's some really incredibly profound things that go on. So we always knew that it had a place in the documentary at some point. Finding the right moment to do it was always a little tricky. But, yeah, it was a really special opportunity that, you know, most filmmakers will never get because most subjects aren't that thorough with their own self-documentation. Did it ever get uncomfortable for you as far as some of the emotions? I mean, it felt like some of the arguments were pretty raw. It felt like maybe, you know, it must have been kind of a weird position to be in, to be around some of these discussions that were getting so heated. The feeling I remember most vividly was frustration because we were all living in a house together, the documentary subjects and the documentary crew. And often the arguments would start while we were gone. Like we were shooting most of the time, you know, (laughs) um, but it always seemed to happen on a day off or just after we finished shooting. So I just remember whenever these fights broke out, that it was sort of frustrating because we'd already sort of packed up the gear and we had to grab it and, you know, whip it out because it was, that's a essential part of the collaboration. You know, there's no, um, there's no creative team, whether they're a band or a long time filmmaking partnership or, or whatever that doesn't have some sort of creative struggle or personal struggle, especially when you've been with these people for so long, they're all sort of like brothers and brothers tend to fight um, about things. So for me, it was less uncomfortable and more just, I, I wish that I'd been able to document the whole thing. It's often happened when I wasn't ready for it. So I just had this thought of why that may have been the case, because it, again, it certainly wasn't we were, like we were waiting, you know, now, now the documentary's not uh, filming, let's get raw. I think I just realized kind of why that might have happened because we had little, but we had definitely had the potential to argue on set, but I think we actually kept ourselves together. I think it was the day is done. We're sitting down. We're finally relaxing and you know, all of the stress is gone uh, and we're, and you're not trying to be on your best behavior to get things done anymore. I think once we let ourselves kind of get raw and, like raw in a way where, yeah, we're not trying to shoot anymore. So now we're just hanging out. And I think that's why it happened then. I don't know. Does that make sense, Jeremy? 
Yeah, it makes sense. And the good part about it was, you know, the conver- the, the fights when they happened um, just a couple of times, they were never short. So even though, you know, I'd get a call <laughs> and I would be 20 miles away, um, we still had time to get there and catch most of it because, you know, there's so much passion involved that um, the, the, the confrontations when they did happen, like once you opened up that, that uh, can of worms, it kept going for a while. So it was pretty natural. And the one thing I can say is that the subjects definitely didn't change their behavior when the cameras clicked on. Everyone grew up being in front of cameras. So in many ways, we could just sort of float around like a fly on the wall and not have too much of an effect over what happened in front of the camera. Jerry, how is it for you kind of seeing these arguments? Well, you're seeing arguments not only from you know, just a few years ago, you're seeing arguments from when you were, you know, a, a little bit older than a teenager. How is it right. reliving some of these things? Uh, you know, it, it's basically it's basically fine because it's something I'm aware of myself. Before we ever even left California, when Jeremy and I were still living together, he's like, you know, uh, you're not always going to look good in this. And I'm like, no, I know, yeah, of course. And he's like, I don't mean just in the old footage. Like, you know, there's you're going to have arguments. Like he already <laughs> knew that was uh, likely to happen just from seeing some footage. And I'm like, I know, I know. I've already known that, that the role that I tend to have, you know, being a director, but you're directing friends, you're producing friends and you're butting up against heads of, uh, you know, we all have creative ideas, but in the end, someone has to make that final decision. And I know that's going to rub people the wrong way. They're going to get upset. I'm going to get upset. I'm going to get tired. So, I wasn't surprised with myself. I have to say I was really happy that, that I never I never did lose it on set. You know, we had little headbutts, but we worked it out. Um, would I have liked to not lost it off set? Definitely. But I think um, all things said, even as ugly as things got in that final argument with John, people say things, you know, amongst family, it happens. And I accept that. It's a part of me. It's part that I'm going to continue working on. Uh, but... It doesn't surprise me, and I'm fine seeing it. What's been the reaction amongst your friends, Jerry, to seeing this documentary? Overwhelmingly positive for the for the most part. I mean, everyone has really enjoyed it. The main subjects, um, people in the periphery. I will say that after our Friday premiere in Detroit, which is a place where um, people who had never seen it finally got to see it, um, people who are in it but maybe aren't a main character in it, uh, a few people definitely came up to me and said, man, you know, it's, it's, it's very bittersweet or, you know, it's kind of depressing in a lot of parts. Um, I'm not surprised to hear, hear them say that. And I know that there's heavy parts. And I also am not surprised that it's going to hit us harder because this is our lives. These are our friends. I think it may be hitting some of us a little harder than it might hit an outside audience. I'm not sure. But uh, overall, I mean, people have been really happy to be part of it. I mean, Jeremy would be a good person to, to, to ask this too, because they might tell me one thing. And since he, I mean, he's part of the family now, but he certainly came in as, as the outsider. I feel like if there were any strongly negative uh, opinions, he would have heard about it. Yeah, I, I'm actually at Joe's house right now, hanging out in, in his garage. So I've definitely sort of been brought into the fold with the crew, and I, you know, consider everybody my friend. And I think I've had a chance to check in with most of the main subjects, and they all, in general, are really proud of the the film. And it kind of feels like we're now all sort of on the same team, that we all want the, the documentary to do well and to get seen by a wider audience. Uh, one thing I tried to do from an early stage in the editing process was 
send early cuts to some of the main subjects to give them sort of a window into how it was shaping. So I think at this point, most of the main subjects have seen five different cuts. So they've all had time to sort of process the shape the film has taken and the various things that are, you know, shown on screen. And it's got to a point now where everybody, it's just like the documentary family is, we're all really happy about the reception that the film's received so far and hopeful about the future of getting it out there to a wider audience. So outside of the folks that are actually part of the documentary, Jeremy, what are some of the reactions that you've been getting as this has been playing around? Oh man, we've been so lucky with um, the the positive feedback we've received so far. We premiered at Slamdance, which um, happens at the same time as Sundance uh, in Park City, but it's kind of like the smaller, weirder film festival. Um, they, their motto is by filmmakers for filmmakers. So playing in that sort of environment was the best possible way to premiere the film because, you know, most of the people watching it were also filmmakers and people who understood the creative process and how valuable creative communities can be to one another and to their, their overall growth as an artist. So that was like the sort of the best way to start off the life of the film. And then since then, we played a festival in Austin and we won Best Doc there. So everything we've received so, so far has been kind of overwhelmingly positive. There are some people who maybe don't necessarily see the hope at the end of the film. I mean, without giving anything away, I'd like to think that when you walk out of the film, you see that there's something powerful about this group of people who are still working together and still part of one another's lives, regardless of the the shape that those lives have taken over the years. That's really spoken to a lot of people, maybe more so people who don't know the subjects. It's always hard to, to see these kids that you watch grow up struggling in life. But for outsiders, I think they, they take away the redeeming quality of this ongoing friendship and collaboration. Jerry, when is the next episode of 30 Minutes of Madness coming out? Well, you know what Joe said? Joe said it should have already been out by now. Well, it's definitely a matter of uh, when, not if. Joe and I just last night um, wrote a song, wrote and recorded a song and started shooting a video, um, a commercial for Mountain Dew, of all things. Uh, Joe was really uh, excited about that idea, and uh, I totally support it. And it's going to be, it, the song is already hilarious and awesome. But yeah, I don't have a date for you yet. Um, but hopefully sooner rather than later. Where can folks go to see old episodes of 30 Minutes of Madness? So uh, I have a website. It's 30mom.com. That's 30mom.com. And currently episodes 8 through 15 are up there. I will put episodes 1 through 7 back up after a while. But I find that people want to start at the beginning. And uh, so I took off one through seven. There's some really, there's some solid stuff there, but I think the best way to do it is start from 15 and go backward. So yeah, 30mom.com. And of course we have 20 years of madness, which also is going to continue to have uh, news about the doc as well as uh, deleted scenes uh, and other material. Obviously social media is a big deal for us too. If anybody's interested in following the film or the, the show, um, we have a 20 years of madness page on Facebook and a 30 minutes of madness page on Facebook. And we, update those pretty regularly with the status of um, how things are coming and any updates that happen. So if anybody wants to stay in touch, they should like us on Facebook. I will be definitely posting those links over at our website, projection-booth.com. Though I have to say, I was kind of disappointed when I went to 30mom.com and it wasn't a MILF site. (laughs) Hey, you know, years ago, I got an offer from someone. I've owned that URL for years. Uh, Someone wanted to buy it for porn. Uh, I did not sell. I did not sell. 
right, we are back. Thank you to Jeremy Royce and Jerry White Jr. for taking the time to talk to us. And it was good talking to them. I was able to ask them some questions that I wasn't necessarily able to ask them at the Q&A. And that was one of those things I'm really thankful to Steve Byrne from the Free Film Festival for you know asking me to be a part of that whole event. And it was really good to be up there on the stage at the DFT asking these guys some questions that I wanted to know. There were some great audience questions and everything, but it was one of those where I was like, man, I could ask these guys like 15, 16 more questions and you know, still not be satisfied because the documentary does a great job telling me what I need to know. But of course, you know, one of the reasons why you listen to the projection booth is because you want to know more than what you're seeing on screen. So that was one of the things I really, you know, wanted to dig in more with this film because it was just such a fascinating kind of idea of having this growth of this character, of these characters, and coming back to it. It it really does make me wonder if I went back and watched something that, you know, we made when we were in high school, if that would have the same resonance. I mean, I'm so glad, Rob, that you have kind of something similar with Tainted. You know, how how many years were you out of high school when you made Tainted? (sighs) One year. (laughs) So I produced that in 97. I graduated in 96. So I originally came on just to do sound. I was just going to do location sound. And eventually I became the lead producer, location sound, co-picture editor, uh, main sound editor. I even have a bit part in the film that I didn't want and I act badly in. Um, So like that was one of those things. But even in high school, I had um, some friends who, uh, one of which is uh, is an actor, and he's done some work. Lives out in L.A. My friend Dean, who is also in Tainted, um, that we did little short video projects because we had a um, a school cable access channel, which would broadcast the you know school board meetings and football games and things like that. And that was a uh, an elective class I think you could take, or you could come in after school and learn how to do TV production. So I learned a little bit in there, but we made a couple of short films on video and they were just ridiculous. And then I also had a a guy who was a manager at the theater where I worked, Uh, not a very good manager, but um, he did this thing. He was one of the first people that I knew who was doing like video collage work. And he took sections from like Zardoz and Planet of the Apes and all these other movies and then edited against a soundtrack. So there was like these reoccurring images and things like that. And then I think he may have had that on a cable access channel. And this would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, I mean, there's some of this stuff that, and and like I said, my other friend, Chris, who I was in a band with, who used to get these tapes from all over the place with various little short films and things that people had created, you know, because that was really the only way that you could get your hands on that kind of stuff before YouTube. Like YouTube now, it's like, you know, it's way too easy for kids to get their hands on on stuff. And it's almost, I'm going to sound kind of elitist. It's way too easy for them to make shitty productions at home when we actually had to go out and learn how to do this stuff, like with a real editing machine and a real camera and all that stuff. So, um, you know, you can do it all now on your cell phone. So I guess that's, that's good in many ways. But I just remember when I was a kid, there was, there seemed to be like more of a magic to it. It was, it was a little more special because not everyone could do it. And it, it took a little bit more of an investment, I think. 
Yeah, it's funny. As you're talking, I'm thinking of all these video projects that I did over the years or was, you know, nominally involved with. There was one video that some friends of mine did called the Posse video, which was their kind of attempt at a, I don't want to say attempt because I think they succeeded. It was their skate video. So it's like, you know, not necessarily search for animal chin type stuff. There's not a narrative to it, but it is, you know, these little vignettes and there's um, just kind of some of the weird stuff that happened to them and they documented it. And, you know, it's a lot of it is shot like um, music videos and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, can I go back now and watch that today? And will it still hold up for me? Yes. But would it hold up for somebody else? I'm not necessarily sure, but then I'm thinking about other stuff where I'm just like, man, I have no idea where some of these tapes are at or if I could ever get my hands on them again. And I so would love to be able to kind of travel back in time and see these things. You know, being able to pop them in a VCR would really bring back a lot of great memories. There's one that I'm still trying to figure out. I remember Chris had a tape that he gave me and it featured a... um it was a mannequin shot against a black background. And it doesn't seem all that, like, my explanation uh, doesn't seem all that sexy. But it was shot from this sort of, like, I guess could only be explained uh, as, like, a Mussolini angle or Hitler angle. Mm-hmm. So that the puppet looked like this dictator. And he was, you know, sort of tilting his head and, of course, his mouth would open. And it was all of this stuff intercut with scenes from like RoboCop where the melting guy gets hit by a car and oh. various horror films, heads exploding out of scanners. And the little puppet says things like, um, I saw your mommy and daddy. I saw them die. And Oh, how I laughed and all of this. And it was just like the most <laughs> like darkly humorous and strange thing I've ever seen. And no credits on it. I have no idea who made it, but, <laughs> but when I saw it on date, it was so fucking brilliant. Like for years, I just had this image in my head of this little dictator puppet with um, like black sunglasses on saying the most vile and awful things about how he laughed when your family died and all of this stuff. I really miss stuff like the Microcinefest or some of the underground film festivals that used to go on. I mean, I'm so glad that there are still underground film festivals here and there, but not nearly to the extent that they were, because that was kind of like your chance to see these fucked up short films and videos and stuff with an audience who were equally as fucked up as you were. And it's like, Seeing stuff now on YouTube alone with your headphones on just doesn't have the impact of seeing stuff with an audience. You know, there are still things that I quote from like Microcinefest 97, and it's just <laughs> like, you know, so that's coming up on 20 years, and it's uh, just amazing how much those things had an impact. Yeah, it's there was a bunch of them. I mean, there were little animated shorts or all this stuff. And I guess it's easier to track it down on YouTube now, you know, because most people will put credits on things or if it's theirs, they post their stuff and you can be like, hey, you know, good job or whatever. But back in the day, just you would just stumble upon things. And I'd have to say it was it was sort of the equivalent of, you know, like someone get you a mixtape of some band you never heard of or, you know, someone would hand you a VHS tape of some film that you never heard of. And then you watch it and you're like, holy shit. Where has this been my entire life? You know, and and, and that's the kind of thing. It's, I, I mean, there is a stumble upon factor um, 
with the internet, but I don't know. It just seems different, you know, in terms of how you find things, how you interact with them, you know, um, I mean, it's obviously better. You can have everything now, basically, but it it almost feels um, almost feels like you don't know where to begin because <laughs> right. there's so much stuff. It's it's like drinking from the fire hose. You're just getting blasted constantly. Yeah, at least with the better underground film festivals, you had a curator, so you had some poor schmuck or schmucks who's going through all of the garbage and being able to pull out those great things for you and being like, here you go. Or like, you know, like, like those mixtapes that you would get those, uh, you know, like, Oh yeah, here's 20 minutes of star search outtakes. And they were just the most amazing things, you know? So just like it, the last time I really remember a, uh, an audio version of this happening where it's like, you have no idea what's going on. Um, you just get this tape and you enjoy the hell out of it. And it kind of becomes almost like this underground cachet kind of thing. It was when the jerky boys were just doing the taped phone calls and there was no CD. There was no jerky boys movie. Thank God. It was just this kind of stuff. And it's like every once in a while you hear somebody call somebody else jerky and it's just like, Oh, you know, as well, <laughs> you know, and it becomes, comes this you know passed around from from person to person kind of thing and i just absolutely love it you know and it is little things like that i mean it's it's the ability to blow someone's mind by passing them something and you know it's so easy to do now i mean there there are favorite little stupid videos on youtube that i'll send people you know by email every so often if they've never They've never seen it, and they'll just fall over in their chair. They'll be like, I, yeah, I didn't know this existed. I go, yeah, now that you know, isn't your life better for it? Yes. And I think that you know, 30 Minutes of Madness was probably that for those who stumbled upon it on cable access. It was definitely made the lives better and interesting, as you learn in the uh, 20 Years of Madness documentary. And you know, like I said at the bottom, I mean, that, that to me is really what it's about. It really is about creating things, working with your friends and what you learn along the way. I mean, if if you never see the end product, if you never if the end product even doesn't even come out, you know, it's about what you learned along the way. I mean, in a lot of ways that's like Jodorowsky's Dune or Lost Soul, which we also talked about the the film about uh, the island Dr. Moreau, in that it's the things you learn in trying to do something and in the challenges that come from that, that sometimes are even greater lessons that you learn than actually having a finished product. So I think on that note, let's go ahead and wrap up this special episode of The Projection Booth. We are going to have all kinds of links to where you can find out more about 20 Years of Madness and 30 Minutes of Madness over at our website, projection-booth.com. Go on over to the site, leave us some feedback. Go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us some stars. You've taken this much enjoyment from us. You can leave some things at the door as well. Starting something new 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm flying on my own puffy clouds where the grass is greener and the water is more crystal clear. See you next year, Paula Bear. The old man used to say, stick out your razzmatazz, stick out your razzmatazz, stick out your razzmatazz. The old man used to say, stick out your razzmatazz. The old man used to say. yourself public access is in trouble the main executives are taking it out and it's a way to express yourself your own god-given talent it's a way to be yourself to be an actor singer or comedian well public access is going out For the talent will shine around about Public access is going out That's what the executives of cable got me telling me about I spoke up at a city council meeting And said all my friends are gonna lose the job And they didn't care what they said They said if I speak out, they're gonna take my cable out Public access is going out, but we gotta stay strong and keep it around about. Public access is going out, but we gotta keep the talent round about. I have a show called the Junior Christian Science Bible Lesson Program, teaching all you right from wrong and teaching a good song to sing along. Teaching them to say no to drugs and do right. Public access is going out, but it will be reburned on YouTube. So as a sprout, public access is going out, but it will be reborn. And you and then public access is saying bye-bye. But we gotta keep the faith that it will survive. Child of communication cable ever since it was crown cable and felcom cable. I don't like how they only take beta tapes, they're old fashioned and out of date. I like them to use DVD that has things played so easily. Public access is going out, but we're gonna sing and be strong roundabout. Public access is going out, but we're gonna be good, strong cable scouts. Public access is going out, but we're gonna keep the ribbon roundabout. Public access, access. is free speech on TV. Watch us on your local cable station, Time Warner. Charter, 
Cox Cable, but it's not on direct TV. You gotta come back to public access and see you and me. Public access is going out. It's saying goodbye. It's saying goodbye. I still don't understand why, why. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.